We've been looking at the questions that people asked uh, Jesus leading up to Easter and then beginning on Easter and going for this week and one more week, we're looking at the questions that Jesus asked his followers. We're looking this morning at John chapter 21, verses 20 through 25, if you have your Bible. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So I'm picturing John writing these words, and and I wonder if it was both a little funny to him how the disciples extended Jesus' statement and a little bit sad to him. He's almost certainly writing uh, his gospel after Peter has been martyred. He and Peter were obviously very close, and and I wonder what it was like for him. Somewhat sad, uh, an older man at this time, John wrote a number of books in the New Testament, including Revelation, which he wrote when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And um, I'm trying to picture him because there's some humor in this. Right, the disciples misunderstanding Jesus' point, and there's some repetition in it, and it reminds me of throughout the rest of the Gospels, other anecdotes that we know, other things that we know from the Gospels that are that are fascinating to me, because there are a lot of things we don't know about how Jesus spent his time, and yet we know that John was faster than Peter. Remember that story? Why do we know that? And here we know this statement that Jesus made, and, and John repeats it. We remember, perhaps from the Gospels, that when Jesus walked on water, Peter actually got out of the boat and walked with him. And he's also the one who denied Jesus. I wonder if John, when he was writing this, was thinking about the time that he asked God to call down fire. Remember that? Probably a low point in John's career as a disciple. He and James, so after, were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. And I'm wondering how much of this John's thinking about as he finishes his gospel, remembers his friend who's been martyred because of his faith in Jesus. I wonder if he wept as he wrote it. What's happening in this text is Jesus is inviting Peter and John to live in the gentle tension of one another's callings. Each one was good at some things and not good at other things. Each one was passionate about some things and not as passionate about other things. A little bit like us. This is a painting by uh, Botticelli, John, on the island of Patmos, which is probably not where he wrote the, uh, the Gospel of John. But I like the picture of it because what has struck me so profoundly about the specific series is how mellow the works and the words of Jesus are after the resurrection. So Jesus... In the Gospel of John, he performs these seven miracles that accentuate his incredible power and his divinity and his ability to forgive sins and proclaims the truth of him as healer. And in his resurrected state, his miracles are more like appearing in a locked room with no explanation. 
And I wonder, as John thought about it, what it was like for him. So John's gospel stops. And at least for me, it feels like an odd stopping point. Unless the purpose of the end of the gospels is to draw us into our calling as followers of Christ. So John's gospel stops and it's with an invitation. And what I've noticed through, through preaching this series and through studying it is that in almost every instance with Jesus and his followers, there's something new that they get to hold up to him with an open hand and let him tend to that thing. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 1 and the expectations that the disciples had of Jesus restoring the nation of Israel. Similarly, on our good days, we're aware of our expectations. God, if you do this, then I'll follow you, which is not the way it works. It's not healthy. It's not good. Sometimes we're not aware of our expectations. We hold them up open-handed as best we can in prayer and as followers of Jesus in community. It's also doubts. Thomas is very clear what he doesn't believe to be true. And your faith has doubts. If it doesn't, I'm worried that it's not actually an alive faith. Thomas holds those up to Jesus and Jesus tends to them. One of the resurrection narratives, Jesus asks them why they're troubled. And I think contextually, our troubles are the things that we believe to be true. And yet we're troubled by them. And I assume that your faith has things that... I assume there are things that you believe to be true that trouble you. And we hold our troubles up to Jesus and ask him to tend to them. And here we have the trick of... Or the problem of comparison. Right? We envy one another's callings. We envy one another's gifts. Have you ever said that you're not smart? You're comparing yourself in your mind to someone else who's probably smart in a way that's different than you? Because there are lots of kinds of smart. And this is me wanting to convince you that there are lots of kinds of smart in order to do something more profound that Jesus is doing more directly. Which is helping us be confident in our own calling. Have you ever said you're not fast? I used to say that all the time. I used to say I'm not fast. And what I meant was like mental processing, not like speed fast. Definitely not speed fast. But what I was getting at was mental processing because there are certain people that their intellect would strike me as impressive. And of course, I have a limited view of anyone else's or even my own. But I think this is the way that we make the same mistake in part that Peter's making in this moment and that John's pointing out. That's why he repeats the statement what Jesus actually said. Is because we look at one another and in our moments of fatigue or because of our humanity, we wish we had one another's stories or gifts. And yet God has called you to be you. He's given you certain gifts. He's also given you certain limitations, which are a gift. He's given you neighbors and work to do in a certain place and in a certain time, which means he's given you work not to do. Have you ever thanked the Lord for the limitations that you have? I think in addition to attempting to understand our calling, which I talked a lot about last week, but I'll remind you, I I think a calling as a follower of Jesus is as best we understand our circumstances, our gifts, and our affections. Lord, what would you have me do? In addition to that, we not only explore that and thank God for the things he has gifted and called us into, also thank him for his limitations. Many of you have been, (laughs) you're old enough and you've been tired enough that you're like, I thank him for my limitations every day. Let me say this a little bit differently. In Ephesians chapter 2, 
the Apostle Paul describes the gospel and then delivers this point in a way that, that I find beautiful and profound. So I want to walk you through it. In Ephesians, which is uh, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Right? Is that right? Did I forget Philippians? Probably not. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, it says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now I'm going to read verse 10 again, and then we're going to zero in on something. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you know that word, workmanship? A whole bunch of scholars in the first service, and I assumed one of them knew this word. I feel like I bring it up a lot in my preaching, but it's probably I bring it up like once a year, and it feels like a lot because I know a lot of you listen to me very carefully. Do you know the word for workmanship? It's poema. That's God's description of you in Christ and the work that he has for you to do. Poem. I don't know if you wish to be someone else or wish to have someone else's gifts, but God calls you his workmanship, his poem created for your specific work and for your specific neighbors. He's given you gifts and limitations that are specific to you. Because he loves and likes you, calls you from sin and death out of those into new life in him in which you have a role. That's what Peter and John are both learning from Jesus to live in the tension of. One another's gifts. I don't know how often you say you're not smart or you're not fast or whatever that version of is with you. But God calls you his poema. I would encourage you to both pray for the gift of a knowledge of your calling and also praise God that he has limited you the way that he's limited you. What an odd sermon application, and yet I believe it's a faithful one. God has given you work and rest. He's given you gift, gifts and limits. I need to pronounce that T because gifts. Gifts and limits. And I would encourage you, follower of Jesus, to thank him for both because it is a gift. John's gospel stops and it's with an invitation and that invitation is to follow. That's what Jesus says to Peter. And following means die to self. That tendency, what about John? Is, that, is our false self wondering about someone else's gifts and someone else's limitations maybe and someone else's story? And Jesus is saying, no, follow. Don't worry about them. I've got them also. Release our other affections and learn to worship him. Follow. Followers of Jesus believe things. There are propositions that we believe to be true, and yet what we're called to is larger than that. 
Followers of Jesus do religious things. We practice religion. But why? Not to merit something before God. Not to accomplish something, but to remind ourselves through those spiritual practices of who He is and of His love. Which is why I love the word follow. And I love remembering that Christians were not called Christians as much in the first century as followers of the way. We do believe things. We do have religious practices. And this certainly is a religion. And yet it is bigger and more transcendent than that. This is what Peter and John and the other disciples who were listening were learning in that moment. And it is the same offer to us. To die to self and come alive to Christ. John's gospel stops with an invitation to follow and then to receive his witness. The Gospel of John tells uh, about seven of Jesus' miracles. He performed around 40-something, at least, that we know of. John tells seven specifically. Water into wine, feeding the 5,000, raising Lazarus from the dead, the man who was paralyzed at Siloam, the official son walking on water and healing a blind man. I wrote that down, and I had to look it up. And the reason that he records those miracles is so that we see his power and thereby hear his message more clearly. That he is the bread of life, the resurrection and the life, the light of the world, the way, the truth and the life, the good shepherd. And as we receive John's witness, then we become witnesses of God's love and mercy and grace and peace. And how you witness is how you do all of life, especially including how you say sorry and ask for forgiveness when you mess up. Jesus is so gentle in his loving pursuit of the disciples in the midst of their expectations, in the midst of their doubts, in the midst of their troubles, and in the midst of their trouble of their comparison to one another. And the reason it's recorded is because he is the same with us. So gently but steadfastly pursuing us in the midst of our expectations, doubts, troubles, and comparisons with one another. Because he loves us and calls us his own. And because of his work, we are reconciled with him. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, as you nourish us with your sacrament, give us a sense of your steadfast love that is ours because of you and your grace, your sacrifice, and your power. Guide us to hold up our expectations, doubts, troubles, and comparisons to you with an open hand and ask that you tend to them as the good shepherd that you are. Free us, Holy Spirit, to be who we fully are in Christ. Amen.